Well, this morning we're going to look at the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews, uh, 6, 11 through 20. And I invite you to turn with me there now. I'm picking up some of what we looked at last week because we're still in, the, in this parenthesis. You know, last week I told you that in chapter 5 he uh, begins a parenthesis from his speech about Jesus being the high priest and the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he breaks from that explanation that covers most of chapter 5 and then back into chapter 7, from chapter 5, 11 down to 6:20, it's kind of a pause in his argument, and he's giving some warnings and some encouragements to his audience because their faith is wavering and their, their hope is waning as they struggle with the trials that they're going through, the persecution uh, that they face for being Christians. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, in verse 11 of chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, I've been talking and we've been singing about hope this morning. And you'll notice that in our passage today, the word hope is used three times in these uh, these verses as the writer talks about the Christian's hope. Because hope in the Bible is different than the way we think about hope today, the way that we use the word hope in uh, our expressions today. We use the word hope a lot. I'm sure that many of you, like me, may have said this week, I hope it stops raining. And perhaps in the past year or so, you have said, we have hope because our candidate won the election. Or maybe you said, there is no hope for this country because our candidate lost the election. Or maybe you said, I hope I get a bonus this year, or I hope I don't owe anything on my taxes this year. Now, all of these things that we say uh, reflect uh, our desire, our expectation, what what we wish for, but there's no certainty to any of these things. We we can't control the weather, of 
course. We don't know if it's going to rain or not. We can have some expectation that uh, our wonderful weathermen give us, um, but we can't know 100% for sure. Uh, and we don't control the future, uh, the future of our nation, for example. And uh, our finances are, you know, uh, sometimes not as reliable as we'd like to think they are. Think of all the people who, about this time last year, lost their jobs unexpectedly because of the pandemic that happened that no one saw coming. So we, uh, we wish with positive expectations, but there's always uncertainty. And if you look at it, I looked at some de- definitions of hope and one of the online dictionaries, the free dictionary says, hope is to wish for a particular event that one considers possible. See, it's possible, but it's not 100% guaranteed. It's not certain. Certain. Now, I noticed that the free dictionary, and I was really pleased to see this, the free, free dictionary had the first definition but it also had a second definition that had the word archaic in front of it. So the archaic definition of hope is this, simply confidence or trust. That's the way the word used to be used, and that's the way the Bible uses the word. So when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about wishful thinking or expecting something that is just possible. No, hope in the Bible is confidence. It is trust. And it just so happens as well that, uh, and, and this is really neat how God does this, and he does this quite often, but uh, uh, an email or an article will come across my computer screen or into my email box, and it's, it is always on something that I'm preaching on or talking about. And uh, I got an email from Crossway Publishers, and they're promoting a new book by Paul Tripp, uh, 40 Days of Hope. <laughs> well, there you go, uh, just what I need to see. And there was an article attached to it that took some excerpts from the book. And he has a great dif- definition in the article that I read of hope. Paul David Tripp says, Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. It is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. Now, in the middle of that sentence is the most important part, a guaranteed result. Christians have a guaranteed result. We have the promises of God and all that God is doing in the world, and that is guaranteed, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. However, we do not always exhibit a confident expectation in the guaranteed result, and that's where faith comes in. Sometimes our faith wavers, and therefore our hope wanes. We have heard about the guaranteed result. We know that we, can, we say we believe in the guaranteed result, but sometimes we begin to doubt, particularly when things go wrong in our lives and we think, is God really for us? Has he forgotten us or does he love us? Have I done something to turn him away from me? And so our faith and hope 
especially our hope in this respect, um, can waver, our confident expectation, which is hope. And because of that, the way that we live changes. You know, we don't have a confident expectation of that guaranteed result, and that does change the way that we live. Our hope uh, wavers. One commentator said uh, the hope of the people that the writer was writing to in Hebrews, their hope was chilled. Their hope was chilled. It was not hot and on fire as it once had been. And it was affecting the way that they lived. And, and if we look at the passage here, uh, what, it, what it did to the original audience, this waning hope, it, it affected the way that they live. It caused them to become sluggish. In 5.11, it, the, the writer says that they'd become dull of hearing, and that's the word sluggish, the same word that's used here in the, in the passage before us. That uh, in verse 12, that you may not be sluggish. So they were becoming sluggish, and that word means lax and apathetic uh, or stagnant in their faith. They weren't moving forward. They weren't really growing. In fact, they were going in the opposite direction. They were thinking of abandoning their faith altogether and going back to Judaism. They had lost their hope. Why did, they, why did they lose their hope? Well, their lives were difficult. As we see throughout this book, they uh, faced persecution. Chapter 10 talks of their, their having their goods uh, confiscated. They went off to visit someone in prison, and, and while they were gone, their things were taken from them. Well, perhaps they thought that the Lord had abandoned them in their hour of need, and, and they were beginning to doubt these promises. And that's why he says what he says here in 11 and 12. We desire, that word is actually the word for lust. That's how fervent this, this writer is communicating to these people. He, he covets, he desires it so much that each one of them, not just all of them, but each one show the same earnestness or eagerness or zeal or diligence to have the full assurance of hope to the end. He wanted them to hold on to that hope and, with, with, and keep that confident expectation of the guaranteed result so that they would not live a life of sluggishness. But, on the other hand, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's calling them to have faith and patience in their trials and to cling to that guaranteed result, have confident expectation of what the Lord is actually doing in the world and the ultimate ends he has for his people. Well, here's where we are in the passage, and we need to ask ourselves a question. What is our Christian life looking like? Where is our faith and our hope, especially our hope, are, are we sluggish, lax, apathetic about faith, apathetic about Christ, apathetic about the things of the Lord? Or is our life marked by faith and patience, even in the midst, especially in the midst of difficulties and trials and temptations? Well, let's look at how the writer of this epistle sought to reignite the hope 
of this audience. Well, first he shares with, with us the hope set before Abraham, and then he's going to talk more specifically about the hope that's set before us, us being those who put their trust in the Lord. Well, he talks about Abraham here in verse 13. He talks about God making a promise to Abraham. And, and the fact that not only did God make a promise to Abraham, a promise that he repeated uh, over and over. Uh, you see it in Genesis chapter 12 where God promises to, to bless Abraham and give him descendants that, that outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore uh, to, to, to give him a land and a place and to build a nation out of him and to bless the nations and to be his God and those people would be his people. So all these promises were given in 12 and then reiterated in, G in Genesis 15 with a ceremony, a covenant ceremony. And then in 17 where God institutes this, the, the sign of circumcision as another reinforcement of these promises. And then again in chapter 22 when God tells Abraham to sacrifice the child of promise, Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac, the one given to Abraham to fulfill these promises. And it's on this occasion, Genesis 22, after Abraham has obeyed and, and trusted the Lord, that the writer of Hebrews is quoting in verse 14, uh, the Lord saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And that's a summation. That is a quote from Genesis 22, but it's a summation of all the promises that, that God had made to Abraham. So God made a promise to Abraham, and not only did he make a promise but he underlined it with an oath. He swore by himself. You know, we, we go to court, perhaps, and we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We're swearing by something greater than us. We put our hand on the Bible, and we're, we're making an oath to tell the truth, and we're, we're swearing by God when we do that, and that's something bigger and greater than us. Well, God, nobody's bigger or greater than God, so he has to swear by himself, and he does that. He does that for Abraham, and Abraham believes God. And, and you think about that. God is truth. God cannot lie. So it would be enough, and this is the argument of the writer of Hebrews, it would be enough that God promised, that, that God promised something to Abraham. But not only does God promise something to Abraham, he underscores that promise with an oath. He, he kind of doubles down on it, and, which is unnecessary for God to do. I mean, if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it because he's God and he cannot lie. But here is God going, doing something extra for not only Abraham, but for those, as it says here, will inherit the promises, the promises made to Abraham. He is giving a, a double reinforcement of the promise that he has made. And it's an important promise because if you read all those uh, promises that were made to Abraham, that were repeated to Abraham, uh, Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God has done this 
double promise and oath to Abraham. And it's not just for him. It's for us as well. Abraham had confidence in the Lord and God had given him every reason for that confidence. Now you look at Abraham's life, you know, Genesis 12, he's doing all right there. And then uh, you get to chapter 15, he reiterates the promise with an oath. And then 16, you know, he's getting worried that God's going to come through at all for him. And so his faith does waver and he decides to fulfill God's promises in his own way. And he has a child with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And that was a terrible mistake, a terrible lack of faith on his part, because that's not how God was going to fulfill the promises. So God, in Genesis 17, reiterates it with this, the covenant of circumcision. He says, no, this one's not going to be the heir, but another child is going to be the heir. And so it's a little later, down the line, when they're very old, that God fulfills his promises. But through faith and patience, Abraham inherited the promises. And he did it there, Mount Moriah, when he went to sacrifice Isaac because he, he was willing to offer in his trust and faith in God to offer Isaac upon the altar, but he, God, of course, stepped in and stopped him. It was just a test, and he received Isaac back. And so he, he received the promise in, full, in fullness there. So God had reconfirmed it to him. We just sang about God. Great is thy faithfulness, or Jeff and Sarah just sang. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. So that God who is faithful to Abraham, is faithful to us as well. In fact, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, Paul and James in the New Testament pick that up and they quote that verse on three different occasions. Once in Romans chapter 4, as Paul is writing to some new believers in the capital city of Rome and he's laying out the gospel to them and explaining it in detail, he quotes Genesis 15:6 and says, the same promises that were made to Abraham, and he trusting in those promises is, a, is the way that God credits his righteousness to you. It's not your own righteousness. Abraham didn't have his own righteousness that, that justified him before God. It was his faith in God's provision. So he's laying that out for the Romans. But then the, to the Galatians, he's talking to a group. He quotes it again in, Gen in Galatians chapter 3. And this is a group of people who are trying to get saved by their works. And he's saying, no, no, you don't get saved by your works. Who's bewitched you? That's the language he uses there in Galatians. Somebody's put a spell on you if you think this crazy stuff. Because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is by faith in God and what he has done in his provision that saves you. Not in your own works. But James, in James chapter 2... He has an entirely different group. It's not people who are, who are trying to rely on their works. It's people who are not doing any works at all. And they're just saying, yeah, we have faith. We've checked the box. We've got the cheap fire insurance. And, uh, and so we're good. But their lives were not exhibiting any signs of faith, any fruit of faith. And so James says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And, and that crediting of righteousness changed his life. His faith was confirmed through his deeds. He bore fruit in keeping with his faith. So faith without works is a dead faith. It's not a real faith. So you see in three different situations, new believer, works-oriented believer, uh, licentious believers, or maybe not believers, uh, they need the gospel. They need these promises made to Abraham. They need to put their faith in God. And in verse 17 of Hebrews 6, the writer explains that when God made his promise and oath to Abraham, he was showing later believers who would inherit all those promises that were made to Abraham. Quote, he was showing later believers, quote, more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. So see, Abraham had a promise, he had an oath, and that was all he needed, and it was all anybody would need it. But that oath was not just for Abraham, but it was for us as well. Because God was showing him that the, that the promises have not changed at all. He has a purpose to bless the nations through those who put their faith, who have the faith of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. You know, we sing the song, or maybe you did. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Uh, we're all, by, by faith, children of Abraham. It's not by descent, but by faith. So we have this hope set before us. The example of Abraham, he put his faith in the Lord and was patient and he inherited the promises. The same is true for us, but we have even more reason to do so because the promise still remains to multiply his people, to build his church, to bless the nations. Every person from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be part of his kingdom he has promised to be our God and that we would be his people. We were created for a relationship with God and he's made that possible. And we have this, verse 19, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to that next week or the week after, Lord willing. But this first part, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have something even more. I mean, we've got all the promises to Abraham confirmed with an oath. We've got something more. We've got Jesus. Because Jesus has come and he has given us an even greater reason to hope. My grandfather, one of my grandfathers, was a welder at Ingalls for decades, 40 years, I think. And, uh, and my other grandfather owned a commercial fishing business. We had many boats that kept, caught fish. When my welder grandfather retired, he would occasionally go to the business of my other grandfather, and he would make anchors. He would cut out and weld together these big, thick sheets of metal, like an inch thick, and make these huge, really heavy anchors that would hold the boats that would go out and fish. Because some of our boats would go out for a couple of weeks at a time out into the Caribbean. 
and catch snapper and other fish. An anchor moors you. And, and as believers, one commentator said, we are moored to an immovable object. We are moored or anchored to an immovable object. Jesus Christ who has entered into the place behind the curtain. He's talking about the Holy of Holies, the place behind the curtain where God's presence was in the temple. But God uh, no longer dwells in the temple. He, he's everywhere, but it's particularly Jesus is at God's right hand. He is in the very presence of God. And so we have a hope in Jesus, and he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf to the very presence of God. Now we talk about being the body of Christ. He is the head and we are the body. And, and in, in one sense, even though we are united to Christ by faith, uh, we are something of a, a dis, disembodied. You know, we've, we've lost our head a little bit because he's up and he's at the right hand of the Father. But where the head is, the body will go one day. We'll be reunited in the physical presence with Jesus. And he being at the right hand of the Father, we are going to be there as well. He's the forerunner. He's the one that's already gone in advance to go where we are going to go. And that gives us a hope. He's a high priest that's there. And we'll talk more about this later. And we've talked more, we talked about it a few weeks ago. He's there interceding for us. He's there representing us. And he is going to pave the way where we can have fellowship with God forever. And that's an anchor for the soul. How is it? Because our, our hope is in a person, a person who cannot be moved. Back to the definition. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Now, I've just been uh, rehearsing for you the guaranteed result. We've got God's Word backed up by an oath, and we've got Jesus, who is our representative, who is our head, who guarantees eternal life to us by rising from the grave. He's the one who is our hope and we need to put that confident expectation in what he's guaranteed for us. And that will change the way we live. That's what the writer's saying. These things are not things that we should be sluggish or apathetic about. This is the most important thing that has ever happened or ever will happen. This is what it's all about. And if we just ignore it or, or nonchalant about it, we're, we're missing the whole point of the entire universe. And we've been singing this all morning. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence? Are we, are we confident in our leaders? Are we confident in our health? Are we confident in our bank accounts? Those things are, are not guaranteed. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? He's sovereign. What will keep us to the end? What will, what will give you security to the end? Only God. The love of Christ in which we st stand. Yes, sing hallelujah. We have a hope that springs eternal. 
or my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. And he means there, he's, he's not being supported by anything else. No matter how sweet it is, no matter how wonderful it is or great it is, he, he's not going to use anything else to support him. He's going to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. So how do we live? How do we live? I mean, if we know that this world is all there is, you know, some of you have had disappointing lives. How do you deal with that? Well, put your hope in the Lord. This, Paul called this life, uh, his life, which was pretty rough. He said these light and momentary afflictions. Uh, he would have been stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and, you know, all that he went through. Light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. So if your life has been disappointed, yeah, it is, it'll be over soon. You know, a hundred years is a speck in eternity. And if your life has been great and wonderful and perfect and you've just flourished and everything you've touched has turned to gold, don't put your hope there. That's fleeting. It's not going to last forever. Life comes to an end. And it's just your wonderful experience here is just a speck in eternity. And actually the things that are laid up for those who put their trust in Jesus are beyond your imagination. It's better than anything that you've ever experienced on this earth. And we can't even grasp what it's going to be like. So have you fled to him for refuge from the sinking ship of this current world order? Do you have a confident expectation of the things that he has promised? Fellowship with God and his people in the new heavens and new earth for eternity, free from the presence of sin and death. Is this changing the way that you live and your perspective on things and what you're investing in? You know, if you, if you know that this, this life is uh, brief and, and uh, that eternity is what you're looking for, then you can sacrifice for others. You can love others when you don't want to. You can lay down your life for others. You can serve. You can put someone else first. Is it changing the way you deal with the disappointments and the trials of life? Or do you feel like you're just tossing to and fro like a ship in a storm and you're just unmoored? Well, there's an anchor. There's an anchor, Jesus. Turn to the anchor of our soul. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would all put our hope in you alone. Lord, we are constantly being told by the media and advertising and, and those, the world around us, all these things that we need, mostly material things. Um, or, or, Lord, we're encouraged to play God ourselves, to create our own identities, to do what we want to do, to have it our way. Lord, I pray that you would melt our hearts and change our, our hard hearts, uh, 
to be conformed to Jesus and to his, your will for us. Help us to understand the plan you have and give us that eternal perspective that might inform the way that we live from day to day. And we pray, Lord, if anyone does not know you, I pray that they would, all of us, not only them, but all of us would taste and see that you are good. And, and as we do, we would taste you even more, that we would come and desire and have an earnestness and a zeal to know you and to love you and to follow you all the days, all these brief days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.